There's been a lot of talk about PTSD since this pandemic began, especially among frontline healthcare workers and medical staff. There's also been a lot of discussion about the way confinement and constant proximity has affected couples, but rarely do we hear both things discussed at once. Now, what happens to a couple when, say, one partner is an orderly at a hospital and the other works from home, and then the orderly develops PTSD? Well, let's talk about it on this episode of Mindful. Welcome to Mindful. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association. Today, we're going to talk about Couple Hopes, an initiative and a research project being conducted out of York and Ryerson Universities. And if we have time, we'll talk a little about borderline personality disorder as well. Okay, spoiler alert, we're definitely going to talk about borderline personality disorder as well. I record these intros after I record the interviews. So, Let's meet today's interviewee. My name is Sky Fitzpatrick. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at York University. And I study uh, ways to optimize treatments for two problems, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and borderline personality disorder. And a lot of my work nowadays has focused on how to use relationships to optimize the treatment for those problems. And so I am one of two principal investigators on a project or a series of projects testing an online intervention called Couple Hopes. So I can talk about that quite a bit more. I'm sure I will over time, but that is essentially an online self-help intervention for couples where one person has PTSD. And from what I understand, you are currently in the third stage of the trial of this uh, online platform. Uh, where you're recruiting families or couples to participate in this. And I guess when it's over, when that third stage is over, this will be an online tool that exists for anybody who is in a couple, one of whom is experiencing PTSD or even both, that they can then access this online and sort of guide their own way through it. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, I think there's certainly a hope that, that that kind of possibility will be there one day. I think what we're in right now, there, yeah, right, there's been many phases. So um, led by Candace Monson, who developed one of the leading interventions for PTSD for couples with an in-person psychotherapy, we adapted that therapy. Myself, um, Candace, and Dr. Ann Wagner adapted that therapy into this online self-help version. Then we tested it in a case series and our results were promising. And then we tested it in an uncontrolled trial and we're analyzing that data now, but it's looking promising. And now we're in a randomized control trial phase, testing couple hopes against a wait list to see, you know, we wanna be sure that it works for people and that it's helpful. Um, and so where it goes next really depends on what we find in the trial, right? So. If it's helpful, we'll probably want to start testing it against some other online interventions or some other uh, options for people to see if it's, you know, if it's outperforming other interventions or if it's the same, you know, understand how it works even a bit better. And then, of course, explore ways. Ultimately, the reason we designed this is because we wanted there to be more accessible support for people who are living with PTSD and their loved ones. So, of course, the end game would be to have it be available broadly. But, but really, that, that kind of depends on a lot of the, the phases and steps we're in now. Right. And, okay, couple HOPES is an acronym, right? HOPES is an acronym. Yes. What does that stand for? So HOPES stands for Helping Overcome PTSD and Enhance Satisfaction. 
connection. And what that basically means is that we think relationships are really important um, to PTSD and, and to trauma recovery more broadly. In fact, social support is one of the strongest predictors of who does and doesn't recover from trauma and who develops PTSD after trauma. So the goal of Couple Hope treating at the same time or relationship satisfaction and also to improve the mental health of partners of people with PTSD who also suffer. And so I, the acronym is trying to pack all that in there. Right. And also you're trying to make an acronym that uh, makes an actual word and then sound. Yeah. Is there some psychology behind that that people are more likely to join up, uh, sign up if it is a nice, simple word that uh, has a catchy sound to it? Ooh, that's an excellent question that I don't actually know the data on. It seems to be very common. I can say that psychologists seem to be obsessed with acronyms. We speak in like alphabet soup. And yeah. so it's very common for psychologists and people in the psychological field to be making acronyms out of things. And probably Randy would say, yes, if you have like a catchy word that will help your, your brand. But I'm actually not sure what the data says about that. And one thing that's been really interesting with Couple Hopes is we've had to really think about these kinds of things in new ways, like thinking about gamifying a web platform so that it's not just a good intervention, but it actually keeps people engaged and people want to do it, you know, and those are the sorts of like kind of almost marketing branding ideas that psychologists might not usually think about, but are, that are present in a lot of web design. So that's kind of been an interesting part of the process of developing this. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's a future podcast episode. We'll, we'll dig deep into the uh, <laughs> acronyms and how those work. Okay. Um, so you've been working presumably on this since before COVID began. Now we're in COVID and couples, mm -hmm. I presume, are spending a lot more time with one another than they were previous to that. Has that changed the way that you're approaching this? So on the one hand, we think that is, you know, it's one of those things that we think is very well designed for these unfortunate circumstances we're in because it means people can get the intervention that they need in their home. And we think that PTSD, there is some evidence already that PTSD is a little bit elevated in response to the pandemic. Um, one of the populations that we're testing couple hopes right in right now is healthcare workers. And that, that was a, a turn that we took in response to the pandemic because we wanted to be able to address the, the incredible stress and burden that healthcare workers are taking on and how they're really functioning in roles that are similar to some of the other people that we are also testing this in like first responders. Um, so I think there's been some, some commentary and some writing about how there's been an increasing strain on some relationships. People are sharing living spaces in a way that they don't usually, people are around each other a lot more. A lot of their typical coping strategies are not available. And we know from lots of data now that people's mental health is suffering in the pandemic. And when people's mental health suffers, their relationship suffers and vice versa. So we think that there's a lot of need for something like Couple Hopes right now. And we think it's really well, well designed to meet the need when people are social distancing, because that's a whole part of the design is that you don't have to go anywhere to get it. We, you know, it comes to you. Right. And what you're doing right now, from what I understand, is that there are professionals, uh, psychologists and other uh, people running this trial who guide the participants through the six stages of a uh, couple hopes. Are you one of those therapists who does that? Are you uh, directly involved in that way? 
I, I am. So a couple, there's a couple interesting pieces on that. So the first thing that, you know, we say quite frequently is that couple hopes is actually not what we would call a therapy, which might seem technical, but the reason that's important is because what was really important to us in designing couple hopes is that it's scalable, is that it's something that lots of people can access. And when you have to have somebody with like highly skilled or professional training, like a PhD or an MSW or um, an MD or something acting as a therapist, that means that things become harder to access because there's less of those people, right? Wait, let's get long for treatment and long for clinics. And Couple Hopes is really designed to overcome those barriers. So we did add coaching to the intervention so that when people are going through the self-help platform, they have access to a coach and they have regular brief calls with coaches to help them get the most out of the platform but we designed it so that the coaches do not have to be professionals and they're not acting as therapists. And that way, you know, we can really, really increase the accessibility of couple hosts because it's not requiring somebody with highly specialized training and long wait lists to be able to administer it. So I have acted as a coach on couple hopes and I do oversee the other coaches who are coaching on couple hopes. Not all of them, you know, I did it because I wanted to, it would be, I wanted to have the experience of coaching on it, um, but I wasn't acting as a, psych, like a therapist or a psychologist in that capacity. And not everyone who's coaching on it is a therapist or a psychologist um, and, or, or are in training and stuff like that. So it's really ultimately designed for people who could, to be able to coach in it, who are not actually therapists. So when you do the coaching, then is it more like IT support? Like here's how to navigate through the website and this is how to get to this stage and that stage? Well, listen, it, it, that's interesting. It's not just IT support, just the challenge of staying in my lane as a coach and I'm not doing anything else. Um, but really coaching, we, coaching, the way we've designed Couple Hopes is that the platform itself which consists of a range of exercises and interactive exercises and videos is kind of the intervention. Like it's giving people the content that we think they need to have PTSD recovery and to enhance their relationship. And the coach's job is really to make sure they're getting the most out of the platform. So what coaches are typically doing is they are following along with couples progress. They're checking in on how their symptoms are, whether they're increasing or decreasing and whether their relationship satisfaction is getting better or worse as they progress through the platform. And they're troubleshooting things with the couple when things are going wrong or when things, when couples aren't, you know, are having a hard time completing homework assignments or something like that. They're working with the couple to help them figure out a way to do that. And when couple, when everything's going great, then they're kind of celebrating with the couple and supporting them in that way. And they're also just the presence of there to answer questions. So when couples say, you know, I don't really know what you mean when you say I need to approach things I would usually avoid that remind me of my trauma. Like, what do you mean by that? The coaches are really there to clarify that so that they can kind of make sure they're getting the most they can out of the platform. Now, you said uh, you've added healthcare workers since the pandemic began because uh, obviously there's a higher uh, rate of PTSD among frontline healthcare workers now than there was before. Uh, previously, your population was, uh, for the most part, first responders, right? Fire, paramedic, police, and military. Uh, was there a reason? And veterans. And veterans, right. Uh, was, that, was there a reason that you chose populations that I presume have a higher level of PTSD than the regular population? That's exactly the reason, because they have a higher rate of PTSD, they have higher rates of trauma exposure, and there is 
some evidence in those populations, particularly the military veteran populations, that there are elevated rates of relationship problems and that partners of, of military members or veterans with PTSD also exhibit their own challenges, their own mental health difficulties. So it's just with a, it's a population with a high need for intervention. And it was a population that we thought it would be really important to test this in because we want to make sure, we want it to be helpful for everybody, but because PTSD can be particularly prevalent and, and severe in those populations, we wanted to make sure it would be helpful for those folks, especially. And in order to participate, do they need to have had a diagnosis of PTSD or do they just need to think that they're exhibiting the symptoms and presume that they have it? That's the, the latter. They do not need a diagnosis. So for our website, if people are interested in that, they can go to the website, which is couplehopes.com. Hopes is plural, so that, that gets people sometimes. And when they go to sign up, we will send them a questionnaire that assesses their PTSD symptoms. We don't diagnose based on that questionnaire, um, but we will screen people to see if they are likely to be eligible and likely to benefit from the program and then let them know. So no diagnosis is needed. They can be in other therapies. They don't need to stop those therapies. They can be in no therapies. Like it's very open in that way, as long as people are a military member, a veteran, a first responder or a healthcare worker and think that they have PTSD or PTSD symptoms. The, the genesis of this, I'm guessing, and you were talking about how uh, the partner to somebody who is experiencing mm -hmm. PTSD symptoms uh, has mental health effects as a result very often. What are some of those and how does that manifest? I think what's important to think about there is that like whatever's going on with relationship, relationship affects the other person and vice versa. Like that's the thing about being in relationships, like we're all connected to each other. So nothing really exists in a vacuum. So for example, we know that when somebody has PTSD, even the way their symptoms show up is going to affect their partner. So where they have nightmares of trauma, they have flashbacks about trauma. And for some partners, for some couples that has these effects, like couples might sleep in separate beds or partners might have to intervene during a flashback or a loved one might seem distracted because they're kind of way in a trauma memory. Um, people with PTSD also have hyperarousal symptoms where they can get more frustrated or angry or they can become, they can feel more controlling to their partners because they're more, you know, scanning their surroundings and concerned about issues of safety. That could affect partners because they might have more conflict in their relationships. They might feel more controlled. And then they also might do a lot to work around the PTSD. So sometimes when people have PTSD, they start to avoid things that remind them of the trauma and their life can get a little smaller. Like they don't want to go out to crowds. They don't want to go out to dinner. They don't want to see friends who are going to ask them about that. And that affects their partners because a lot of partners will say, you know, we had a really different life before PTSD. We used to be able to go out and do all these things. We used to see our friends. We used to see our family. And now we can't do a lot of that stuff because it's too upsetting to my loved one or we don't we don't go out or when we go out, it's very specific how we have to do it to make them feel comfortable. And that can result in both members of the couple feeling really isolated. So when our relationships have more conflict or we feel more isolated or less support in those relationships, regardless of whether that's PTSD or something else, that's associated with a range of problems. So, you know, depression can be higher, anxiety can be higher. And just general kind of general distress, not feeling well can also be elevated in in partners and in family members as a result of those things.
So it can kind of snowball then is what you're saying. The not dealing with it immediately That's right. can lead That's to- right. Right. I was just going to say, it's not just that, like it can snowball in that direction, but also because most of us have trauma, but not all of us develop PTSD after trauma, most people, a lot of people will kind of recover naturally and will not develop PTSD. One of the strongest predictors of who does develop PTSD is how strong their relationships are, how supported they are by their loved ones. So if you already have a challenging relationship, that can affect PTSD. And then the PTSD can affect that relationship. So they really swirl around each other in a pretty complicated knot. With this right now, you're in the third stage of trials, so you're recruiting some couples. Uh, but what you really want, uh, I think, from this is to let people know that there are tools available. Uh, how common mm-hmm. is it for tools to be available for couples in situations like this? Or is it usually just focused on the one person experiencing the symptoms? Well, I think that, you know, um, so there's a number of treatments for PTSD that work that are out there. Many of them are individually focused. So people with PTSD might have heard of things like prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR. These are all treatments that are pretty widely available um, as as far as psychotherapies go and are available. These are treatments that have, you know, amassed empirical support for being effective for PTSD, but those treat the individual with PTSD alone. There is a treatment developed by one of the investigators on this team, as I mentioned earlier, Candace Monson, who called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy or CBCT, which is delivered to a person with PTSD and a loved one together to try and improve their relationship and treat PTSD at the same time. So that is available, but um, but not everyone's trained in it, right? So some people are, so sometimes people are, are able to access and there's certainly um, websites where you can go and find which providers are able to give these kinds of interventions. Um, but the goal in Couple Hopes is to make it much, much more available to get these kinds of ideas out to people no matter where they live and and what resources they have access to. I would say the norm is that for things to be individually focused. Right, and so so what resources are available right now to a couple uh, who's experiencing this? Study there, we're gonna go to couplehope.com and try and and sign up and, and screen to see if they're eligible. Otherwise, I think trying to find a psychotherapist would be another option. And that's very, very, very regional, depending on which hospital to go to, which services you want to pursue really depends on where you live in the country. Um, There are often resources available online uh, uh, through websites like the National Center for PTSD provide a lot, which is in the United States, but provides a lot of great information to people about PTSD. Um, and there's another website, which I can verify what it's called, but I believe it's Couple Therapy for PTSD that can provide some information about finding a trained provider and um, PTSD in general. So that'd be another place people could go to check out. Otherwise, general mental health services, um, talking to your doctor or your GP about where you can go to find them um, can be really a good place to start. Now, how does it differ when you're doing this uh, intervention, when one member of the couple is the one who's experienced PTSD from when both members have experienced it? Is it still basically the Mm -hmm. same approach? 
Yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting question. And we have treated couples, at least for the couple in person therapy, where both members have PTSD. So what we would call dual PTSD sometimes. I actually think these kinds of interventions can be great. I mean, couple hopes, we don't know. That's an empirical question. But a couple therapy can be great when both couples have PTSD because they both need to learn the skills to treat their own PTSD and they can also use those skills to connect to each other. One thing that's so beautiful about these kinds of couple therapies is that when couples can come through a PTSD treatment together, they're often brought even closer together. They've been through something challenging. They've helped one person heal, talk about really difficult things and that can really make a relationship stronger and, and foster intimacy. So, so if both members are dealing with that, then really the, the main difference is that the therapist is kind of applying the skills to both people at the same time. So typically, just as an example, we would get one member, you know, we would be working on couple with couples to help the person with PTSD approach things that remind them of the trauma instead of avoid those things. So, you know, talking about something that reminds them of the trauma that they would usually avoid because it brings on distress, which is a very difficult thing to do, but often can help PTSD recover. So the difference would be the homework for a couple like that, where both people have PTSD, is they would both have those assignments to be working with each other to both kind of target and share about their trauma-related experiences, not necessarily in detail, but how it's impacted them or thoughts that they've had. Whereas if just one person has PTSD, they're working together but the partner might be in a more supportive role. So they might be helping the person or cheerleading or encouraging them or saying like, I know this is hard, you've got this or let's go together to do that really difficult homework task. In a dual PTSD situation, they can support each other and they're both kind of the person who's doing the approaching at the same time. That's just an example. Now, tell me how you got into this. What, what was the path that took you to wanting to work with people who had PTSD? Uh, and I believe you said there was one other thing that you specialized in. Uh, what, yeah. what took you to that uh, place? Take me on that journey. That's such a fun question for me. <laughs> um, so my path has been pretty interesting. So I started out like when I started graduate school. I started working with somebody who's an expert in a disorder called borderline personality disorder, which is the other disorder that I specialize in, which is a disorder that um, involves high, high, highly intense and labile emotions, lots of relationship problems, and a very, very high rates of self-harm and suicidal behavior. Um, and the reason I was drawn to that population is because that population, in my opinion, is one of the most highly stigmatized and misunderstood groups in the mental health field, and they are suffering immensely. So the rates of suicidal, suicide attempts and suicide in that population is very high, but a lot of providers are um, intimidated or cautious about treating people with that problem. And so it's very difficult for people with borderline personality disorder to access therapy and support. Um, so I personally was very drawn to that field because I felt like more researchers and more clinicians who could do this were needed there. And it just kind of broke my heart. Like the idea of these people, so much misunderstanding and so little help from the healthcare industry was an injustice that I kind of felt like as soon as I started to think about it, it felt like there was like no other path for me. Like this is what I have to do. Right. Is so I've been doing that for a while and I love that. And like, hmm. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you some of that stigma, a result of sort of movies and TV 
because I know that I've heard the term borderline personality disorder, uh, like on a show like Criminal Minds, right? But I'm not sure that I know much more about it beyond that. Is, is that part of the issue that creates that stigma? You know, I think that there is that. So I, I would, this is just speculating, but I would say that there's a couple places it comes from. One is movies and TV for sure. So Girl Interrupted, I would say is like the classic sort of stereotypical portrayal of somebody with this diagnosis. Um, but frankly, I feel like a lot of the stigma has come from within the medical and healthcare field itself. And I really feel like it's been perpetuated by healthcare providers and it's up to us to fix it. So um, people with borderline personality disorder often struggle a lot with intense anger. They often have, like I said, really rocky relationships and that can make working with them um, stressful or challenging. And so a lot of people, I believe, have responded to that stress and burnout by, by stereotyping or getting judgmental or becoming pejorative about people with BPD and making assumptions that are not true. So one assumption that you'll hear often is that people with BPD are manipulative, that they're trying to manipulate people by attempting suicide, by self-injuring, but there's actually no evidence that they're manipulative. I've never actually met somebody with BPD who I find to be manipulative. Like it's really just stigma, but these ideas I think have come from frustrated providers and frankly, also, um, there's been a lot of sexism and how people with BPD have been described and the diagnosis is uh, predominantly applied to women. So I think part of that is like this history of pathologizing people with BPD, of framing them as attention seeking or manipulative or promiscuous or whatever pejorative language is being used has come from the media, but it has also come from healthcare providers. And it is something that is, um, is getting a lot better, but it, it has been a historical problem. And the other big piece of stigma is that, uh, that that gets out there a lot is that people with BPD can't be treated, which is not true. Like we have lots of data now to show that this is a treatable problem um, and that there are treatments that work very well for this, this population. And what are some of those treatments? So the treatment that's been studied the most, that's most popular is a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy. So that is, um, a treatment that combines mindfulness practices that are derived from Zen Buddhism with behavioral therapy interventions with something called dialectics, which helps people kind of balance both the acceptance side of the Zen Buddhism, helping people accept themselves as they are with the behavioral side of the treatment, which is also helping people change. So uh, dialectics is a philosophy that lets both of those things be true at the same time, essentially. So that's one of the treatments. There are other treatments as well. Something called mentalization-based therapy has been studied quite a bit. And then there are two others that are common. One's called transference-focused therapy and the other's called schema-focused therapy. And, and those are really growing in availability. And there are also now a range of groups for family members of people with BPD um, called family connections groups that people can access for themselves to get support when they're worried about their loved one with BPD, borderline personality disorder. Right. Okay. And so that is a little bit similar to the couples therapy that you're talking about here. So take me from BPD to PTSD and couples. Yes, I would love to. So I was pursuing my BPD path and I, um, I love working with that population so much. It really fulfills me. But as I started to learn more and work more with people with BPD, I realized that there was this huge problem of PTSD in people with BPD. 
basically um, up to 91% of people with BPD have a history of childhood maltreatment, uh, neglect, abuse, trauma of some kind. They have extensive trauma histories and about half of people with BPD have a diagnosis of PTSD as well. And when they have both diagnoses, they tend to have more severe, both PTSD and BPD, more suicide attempts in their lifetime. And sometimes their responses to treatments for BPD are not as, not as strong. They still can get better, but, but uh, less so. And, and our BPD treatments actually work for many, many things, but they, PTSD does not tend to get better from just BPD treatment alone. So I started to realize that to really help this highly traumatized, highly suffering population, I didn't need to just be like a BPD expert. I felt like I needed to be a PTSD expert as well and learn a lot about both disorders because they swirl around each other a lot. And I like to think about myself as somebody who really likes to, like the thing that I really like to work with and help is this kind of like mess of like, the, of, I have a lot, of, a lot of these problems that go together. I can't separate them out and it's causing a lot of suffering. Like that's really ultimately the population that, that I feel like I'm here to work with and try and help. And so, so I went from BPD and I started to pursue training in PTSD treatments and PTSD treatment research, which led me to working with um, the great Candace Monson, who I've referred to already. And then from that, that started to help me understand that just as PTSD affects relationships, BPD really affects relationships too. It's part of the diagnostic criteria of BPD is having rocky and unstable relationships. So in my other line of research, we've been applying couples therapy to people with BPD and their partners for very, very similar reasons. So I think these groups have a lot in common and they often co-occur with each other. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. Okay, that's interesting. So if somebody has borderline personality disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder, and as you said, that's 50% of people with BPD who have both, uh, is it the case that you need to treat the one before the other? Uh, the PTSD treatment has to come first before you can start to really uh, tackle the BPD? Or uh, is it all uh, an all-in-one treatment scenario where both treatments are adjusted and amalgamated and, and put into one thing? That's an excellent question. It's actually a very controversial question. So historically, the idea was that we would want, you know, we want to stabilize people. And by stabilize, I mean treat the BPD because it leads to so much instability and chaos in people's life, not just suicide and self-harm, but also high rates of substance use, gambling, binge eating, shopping, like, shopping problems. So the, the historical idea is that we wanted to stabilize before we do PTSD treatment because PTSD treatment can be challenging. It can be distressing to talk about trauma. And so people wanted to make sure that that was well treated before they moved into the next phase of treatment, which would be PTSD treatment. That is still very common. It's possibly even the most common practice. Increasingly, there have been treatments that have been developed that treat these two things concurrently. So there are treatments that put PTSD interventions into dialectical behavior therapy, that, that therapy for BPD, and have it happening alongside the BPD treatment. Um, there's a few treatments like that that have been tested and shown to be efficacious, not just in treating PTSD, but they actually result in uh, greater reductions in suicide attempts 
than if you just did the BPD treatment alone without the PTSD treatment. That's what the early data is suggesting. Um, and, and there has been a little bit of pilot data here and there that's been administering just a straight up PTSD treatment in people with BPD without any BPD treatments, but that's very early and that hasn't been fully tested yet, but it might be somewhere the field might go. And is, is the, uh, you mentioned a reduction in suicide attempts, is that the main metric by which you uh, are able to gauge the success of a, a concurrent program versus another program or uh, are there other benchmarks that you might be able to use to suggest one is effective? Well, often in BPD treatment trials, one of the primary outcomes is suicide attempts and self-harming behavior. Um, other, many other outcomes have been measured, including like anger, suicidal ideation, BPD symptoms themselves, which are not just suicide attempts and self-harming behavior. There's many other symptoms. So those things, quality of life, and then a range of comorbid problems like depression, anxiety, like those are often measured. But normally what you see, at least in the dialectical behavior therapy world, is that self-harm and suicide attempts are a primary outcome. That being said, DBT, uh, dialectical behavior therapy, has been administered to many, many people with borderline personality disorder who do not engage in any self-harm or suicide. You do not have to engage in those things to have a diagnosis of BPD. And so it's not like the only thing DBT proves is these, that is what it's typically tested in predominantly. The research suggests that it improves lots of other domains, including like quality of life, anger, emotions, and other things. Right. Okay. So I'm picturing the person listening to this who may think, you know what, uh, my spouse exhibits some of the symptoms that I think exist in PTSD, but they're very resistant mm -hmm. to wanting to go to treatment. Is this easier? If you do a couple's thing, is it easier to say, hey, let's do it together uh, than to say, you know, you should probably get some professional help uh, for somebody who's resistant? I think that so depends on the couple. So some couples will say, yes, let's do this together. Sometimes the carrot for somebody with PTSD is not, I don't really want to work on my PTSD that much, but I do want to improve my relationship. So that can be a way people become interested in something like this. Sometimes people with PTSD will say, I don't want you involved in my treatment. Like this is just for me. I don't want you to hear about that. Um, and so for some people it would be a deterrent. So what's I think really important is that people have a big menu of treatment options, right? So that we could say, okay, for people who are willing to do this in a couple format or willing to do this with their partner, we think there's a lot of reasons to do that, that that makes sense and that will help people. But if people don't want to do that, then there are these individual treatments that work for PTSD that are, that are available for them too. So what I'd love to see in the world is just a very, very diverse menu where, where patients or clients are empowered to make the choices that make the most sense for them. And I love the idea of the, just the idea of being able to have somebody immediately around you all the time who can provide some support when you're going through something like this. I, I want to show you something. Hang on a second. So. <laughs> I came down to my computer today. I went and did a workout. I'm trying to uh, get back into shape. This is my, um, a year into COVID. I finally decided that I have a gym downstairs. I should probably use it. And so today I worked out for the third day in a row, three consecutive days. And my wife left this note on the computer for me that says, keep working out. I'm proud of you. And I thought that's actually really sweet. Uh, 
you know, I, I thought maybe, you know, 30 days in might be. Did it encourage you? I don't know. I don't know yet. I'll know tomorrow when I decide whether to make it four consecutive days. Right. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty. And I thought, okay, that that's. I think that's a great example. It's a great example of what, what couples can do for each other. And imagine somebody who has PTSD who really wants to avoid driving on a particular street. It's really scary for them. And we think that that's part of what's keeping PTSD going. And then they do it. And then the person that they love the most can be there when they get home and say, I know that was really tough. I'm so proud of you. That's really powerful and really reinforcing to have somebody, you know, really be on your team for, for what can be a very profound treatment or intervention. Yes, absolutely. Now I do just recognize for, uh, right now that the irony in this is that it's written on a McDonald's napkin from <laughs> so baby steps right I guess baby it steps. is all about baby steps okay now I have one final question for you I saw in your literature uh, that people who participate in this can get up to $52.50 in Tim Horton's gift cards. That seems like an odd number to have landed upon. Uh, how, how does that process work and how was that decision reached? Um, that's hilarious. So uh, we compensate people not for doing the intervention. The intervention is free. Nobody has to pay us to do anything. Uh, we pay people for doing assessments in our study. So, and we pay them in gift cards and it's, I don't know if it's just Tim Hortons. There's, I, I know we have a, a few different gift card options people can choose. And often in the research field, there's like, it's not like completely set, but there's standard rates depending on how long you think the assessments are supposed to take that we got to that number. People get paid $7 and the assessments are quite brief, $7 and 50 cents for each assessment, which is at the beginning, middle and end of the treatment and then one or two yeah and then then two uh assessments following the end of the intervention so it's probably adding up all of those specific numbers <laughs> i might be misrepresenting how much people get compensated so <laughs> the flyers are accurate and if they have questions about that piece they can get in touch but it's, it's an amalgamation of a bunch of little pieces of compensation people get from doing each part of the, the assessment so it actually is uh, something that you've determined uh, in a rational way. I was hoping you would just say it was a random number generator and that was the amount that came out. But all right. Well, I hope people participate in it and I hope that people know that this is out there and that other uh, treatments and options are available for uh, couples who have PTSD. And thank you. This was uh, really great. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Dr. Sky Fitzpatrick, assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at York University and one of the creators of the Couple Hopes platform. To find out more about them and their work, visit couplehopes.com. That's hopes with an S. A quick update as I am recording this conclusion. A few weeks after the interview took place, I did in fact work out a fourth day. And according to the app on my phone, I have a four-week streak now of at least three days per week going. And now both my wife and my phone are proud of my progress. That does it for this episode of Mindful. Join us next week when we'll meet some more students from Jim Cresswell's History of Psychology class at the University of Calgary. 
Mindful is written, hosted, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Eric Bullman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. Thank you.